Hello, fellow law nerds. Welcome to a special episode of Boom Lawyered, a rewired.news podcast hosted by the legal journalism team that I don't know, man. You know, just I don't fucking know. <laughs> I'm Imani Gandhi. <laughs> And I'm Jess Beeklow. Rewire.news is dedicated to bringing you the best reproductive rights and social justice news, commentary, and analysis on the web. And the Team Legal Podcast is part of that mission. So a big thanks to our subscribers and a welcome to our new listeners. Jess, it has been a long year. Oh, God, the longest. So long. (laughs) This time last year, we were reeling from the news that Anthony Kennedy had retired from the Supreme Court. Cut to today, and literally everything is on fire, figuratively speaking. (laughs) (laughs) We've been been throwing a lot of case law and jurisprudence at you, dear listeners, over the past year. We really have. we, We thought that we would take a break from all the law nerdery and talk to you about what really creams our Twinkies. Uh, okay. Well, we thought it would be fun to ask each other questions. Things that we've been wanting to know about each other. Things we thought you'd like to know. But, Monty, can we please never say cream our Twinkies again? Because, no. Let's not. I know. It's pretty gross. But I really love that turn of phrase. Man, that really creams my Twinkie. (laughs) But don't we already know pretty much everything about each other? We've been friends for, what, seven or eight years? Like, work spouses for about three now? I mean, what's, what's there to know? You'd think so, but okay, I'm just going to pull one example, right? So listeners, yesterday, um, Amani and I were chatting, and in Slack, she said, aren't you from where the fuck ever Nebraska? And I was like, oh yeah, Omaha. And then what happened next, Amani? I mean, look, <laughs> I may have responded in a way that might have suggested that I thought a city that is clearly in Oklahoma was in Nebraska, but it's the middle of the country, and I don't know what what the fuck goes on in the middle of the country. I just gotta say, Nebraskans and Oklahomans would not tolerate that nonsense. <laughs> this is why I can never go to Nebraska or Oklahoma. You know, I'm, I'm like on a, I'm like on America's Most Wanted list, but only in those two states. <laughs> but let's start. Let's start there. Let's start in Nebraska. You grew up in Nebraska, surrounded sure. by conservative people, and your dad was a pretty badass civil rights lawyer. So tell me, tell me what that was like. Oh, shout out to Bruce Mason. He's part of our Facebook uh, Boom Lawyered family. Uh, so if you ever are in the Boom Lawyered uh, Facebook family group and you see Bruce commenting on pieces, that's my dad. Say hi. He <laughs> is lovely. So um, Omaha in Reagan and Bush years is to be like pretty brief. Let's see. If you're watching Stranger Things, right, it's like Indiana, except if it was the nexus of conservative evangelical uh, politics at the time. So it's bonkers to be a white person doing civil rights work in Nebraska at all, let alone um, the kind of work that my dad did, which was very much racial focused and um, disability rights. So it was a little strange. Let me give you a taste of it. So um, he used to be a former public defender and then transitioned into the civil rights work. And did cases like he and a colleague of his shut down a regional mental health facility in Nebraska because the folks who were running it were systemically abusing patients in a very terrible way. Um, And one of the things that I remember most about growing up is in his office, he had a large black and white uh, photograph that was framed and in like 11 by 12, so large-ish, right? And it was uh, just tombstones with numbers. And those were the graves that uh, where they had buried uh, patients who had died there at the hands of the staff. Shut that shit down. Wow. 
sued the town of White Clay, Nebraska for basically being an outlet to just keep natives on the Pine, Re- the Pine Ridge Reservation in a state of alcoholic unemployment. Um, and so was doing stuff like that while, by the way, it, living in the same town that Jenny Thomas is at the time and Creighton University and sort of Catholic power that we are dealing with today is right in our backyard. So wow. they like did political cartoons about him. It was weird. Really? So your dad was like super woke for, you know, mid 80s Nebraska. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, I mean, and so it's it was really unique in that way. Um, but like also you're a kid, so you don't have any idea. Like your dad's just kind of embarrassing. He's your dad. Sorry, Bruce, <laughs> but you were. Right. Um, and, you know, he lives a couple blocks away. Maybe I should have him on the podcast and like have him tell some more stories. That'd be kind of cool, actually. Yeah. But um, so, you know, one, I will say two things about that um, real quick. One is that it definitely gave me a sense of always being in the opposition party because when your dad is doing things like advocating for racial justice in a town that is so heavily segregated, I didn't even have any black students or instructors until I went to public school in in middle school um, and one at that point in West Omaha. Um, like that is a unique experience in and of itself. But then also to sort of build on that, I was probably one of the only kids I knew who actually that was white that actually knew folks who were black, who were Hispanic, who were Asian, who had any sort of economic diversity. You know, any it is such an insulated um, community in that sense, but also weirdly produces some like radical pro-abortion folks like me and Robin Marty and TJ Two, who's at the Center for Reproductive Rights, you know, litigating at the Supreme Court. Roxanne Gay is from Omaha. So like all sorts of like, you know, yeah. So there's like this like amazing pool of stuff too, not to like make it sound like the seventh circle of hell. But it, you know, to ask you, it's pretty weird. But, you know, we have very different experiences, but I think there's a unique sort of tie in that, in that we have this, um, existing in uh, kind of our own little world. Like, for example, your family has a uh, FBI file yeah. on it, right? Yeah. Like, this is one of my favorite, um, like, if Imani and I were to go on the Newlywood game together, like, this is one of the, I think, stories <laughs> that listeners need to hear about you because your fan- they kept an FBI file on your family. Yeah, yeah, they did. And I didn't find out about that until I think it was maybe two years ago when this guy named Nicholas. I love the story. He's a professor uh, somewhere in, in, in Pennsylvania who's writing a book about my family, uh, about the white side of my family. This is the Jewish white side of my family. For those of you who don't know, I'm adopted. My mom's a white Jew. My dad's a black Catholic. Neither of them are particularly religious. I've never really set foot in a church aside for like a Catholic wedding or two. Um, And I always knew my family were pretty radical, but I didn't really know what that meant. Um, I knew that there was, I knew that McCarthy had been heavily involved in something crazy that was going on in my family. But at the time when I was a kid, I didn't know what that meant. I just knew my grandma would always talk about that bastard McCarthy, that bastard McCarthy, Mm -hmm. and just constantly talking about that bastard McCarthy. And so, you know, I sort of, there was a book called The Case Against the School Board that my grandma gave me when I was, you know, 17 or 18. I was like, whatever, grandma, let's just take me shopping. Let's go buy sweaters. You know, (laughs) so I just wasn't really, I need a new swatch watch. Yeah, exactly. I need a new swatch. It wasn't particularly something I, that, I, that had sunk in that this was such a huge part of my background. So what ended up happening was is in the 50s, my grandfather was a school teacher in Philadelphia. He was on a school teacher 
in the Philadelphia school district. Very good teacher, mm-hmm. an English teacher. And he ended up being fired as a teacher because he refused to name names. And what I mean by that is that my grandfather was also a member of the Communist Party and had meetings with other communists. And when he was called to task for it, he refused to rat other people out. I mean, the 50s, from just based on my reading and studying the era, and I haven't done that that much, it was a really terrifying time for, obviously, for communists, but for mm-hmm. liberals, for especially for liberal Jews, which my white side of my family were. And so my grandfather was just like, you know, fuck you. I'm not naming names. I'm not calling out my colleagues. So he got fired. Um, sank my mom's family into poverty, which I didn't know. Um, my mom was telling me stories just recently about how kids in the neighborhood were told not to play with her because she came from that commie wow. Jew family, which is, which is interesting. So my mom kind of grew up having a bit of hardship, yeah. which makes sense now because one of her big, big fears that she always says is she's like, I don't want to be a bag lady when I grow when I'm older. And I'm like, mom, you're doing fine. Like, you're not going to yeah. be a bag lady. And if it ends up that you be a bag lady, we'll figure it out. I'll help you out. But this is why she's very frugal and she's been very frugal her entire life life because she grew up poor so cut to like you know 2017 or so and I get this email from this researcher Nicholas who I mentioned and he says I'm writing a book and I've got all these files I did a FOIA request to the government and I got all of the files that the FBI kept on your grandparents and I was like you got what from who on the what what?" (laughs) and he's like yeah you know I'll send you all this stuff and you can take a look at it. And, you know, if I don't know if you would be willing to talk to me if you have a lot of memories of your, your grandfather. And I said, no, I don't because my grandfather died of brain cancer when I was about 12. So I don't I never really had to have deep political uh, conversations mm-hmm. with him. Um, and then he started talking about, you know, whether I talked to my grandma a lot about it. And I said a little bit, but not too much. And so he sends me all of these files and then he also tells me, oh, and I also have a FOIA request into the National Archives and the National Archives has even more files than the FBI does. And they're mostly centered around your grandmother. And I'm like, what? Oh, okay." So I go through these files and it's like letters signed by J. Edgar Hoover authorizing agents to go dig through my grandparents trash. Like this is why my parents ran a daycare camp called Sunnyside, I believe, in Philadelphia, sort of like in uh, the su- suburban Philadelphia, Edenheim, if you're Erdenheim, I'm sorry, if you're familiar with the Philadelphia area. And um, they ha- had a day camp there and there were agents that were tracking who were sending their kids to these day camps. What were these day camps doing? I mean, it was fucking day camp, arts and crafts and swimming and stuff. But they seemed to think it was some They're sort of They're like, making noodle art. <laughs> right. Making noodle art and, you know, macrame fucking pasting macaroni onto paper, you know, but they thought it was some sort of socialist training camp. Um, So that was a really, it was very moving for me because, you know, it just sort of shows, it just goes to show that the government is in your business. And if you are a radical person in this country who is working for change, working for things to be better, the government is probably tracking you. Like I have no doubt that Jess and I are on a list somewhere. Like, no yep. doubt about it. We probably have FBI files on us. And I'm, and I'm cool with that. There's FBI files on my whole family. It's fucking great. But, and here's where I'll end. What I think is really interesting is that this researcher told me that he's been focused more on my grandma than he has been on my grandfather. And it was always my grandpa who was the one who got fired and he was fighting back and doing yeah. all this stuff. And my grandma was just sort of like my grandpa's wife, you know, she would make cookies uh-huh. and serve tea at the meetings and whatnot. Oh, no, 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 no. She was like secretary of the fucking Communist Party that they were I love a this. member of. Like she was deep in the shit. And 
you know, it was the 50s, so women women are overlooked now. Imagine how overlooked women were then, especially radical, progressive, tiny little five-foot-one Jews, you know? It's just like, yeah. my grandma was a badass, and in a way, she always was. I knew she was. She, was. she worked with Women's Strike for Peace. They were very, very active, but I didn't know she was like... That badass, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Secretary of the freaking Communist Party badass. So that's so I feel awesome. like now what I'm doing now, I feel like I would have I would ma- have made my grandparents really proud. Uh, you most certainly would have, Amani, without a doubt. Uh, oh, my gosh. So, yeah, now that we've told our stories, you know, maybe, I don't know. What should we talk about next, Jess? Maybe how you and I met, how we became oh, Kindle wives, yes. <laughs> Amazon wives. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We met on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. We met on Twitter. We, we were both did. miserable in law jobs and met on Twitter and fought our way into journalism jobs. And that is the tea. I mean, sincerely, that's what that's it is. Exactly the lesson is, is you can you can absolutely um, uh, change careers, I think, is an important thing to say. But both Amani and I have backgrounds in uh, from private practice. And, you know, I spent some time is in legal academia as well. And it was just a shared curiosity and interest and then a desire to just keep working and you know, it was meant to be, Imani. So Jess, what was your main focus when you were in private practice? Oh, my goodness. So I worked for an insurance defense firm. Oh, no. You know what? I did, too. <laughs> Which is really funny because we're so same-brained in so many ways. And the fact that we both... Worked in insurance defense is pretty hilarious. You in Minnesota, me in California. Yeah. But like. yeah, so I went to law school in Minnesota and was in private practice there for uh, a good long while and then was in legal academia there for a while. But when I was a practicing lawyer, um, I focused, I was at an insurance defense firm because if you are doing litigation and you are not working for an attorney general's office or doing criminal work in some fashion, and I was doing civil, that was always my sort of jam, um, you're going to work for an insurance defense firm at some point because that's just how the world works. Um, and so my background was in health law, mostly. Yeah. Um, and it was all sorts of health law. It was, um, you know, there's a lot of biotech and health uh, related industry in Minneapolis. And so worked on some of their medical device stuff worked. Um, but principally, I was doing a lot of medical malpractice defense. So I was dealing when um, situations went really south for folks. Yeah. Um, and um, representing doctors and nurses and hospitals. And so that's really what introduced me to health law. And then I mentioned Bruce Mason, my dad, Mm -hmm. um, and his whole sort of jam. So I had always had a constitutional bug. And then um, the Affordable Care Act happened. And that's sort of what transitioned me into academics. Um, But yeah, I mean, I was I was billing hours, you know, remember counting time in increments of, for us, we had to keep track of it. Six minutes. Was it six minutes for you? It was six minutes for me, but when I started out as a paralegal, it was 15. Oh, that's so much saner. 15. Now it's like six minutes? It's like, are you serious? We should probably explain what that means because this is wild. And we'll give you a little insight into just how miserable private practice lives can be. Right. So in private practice, you have to keep time, right? Because lawyers work on billable billing hours. hours. And so you are billed out by the hour. I, at my height, I was billed out at like 5.50 an hour. Not worth 5.50 an hour. It's ridiculous. But you have to keep timesheets. And in the early days, you had to do it on paper. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time I was leaving the law, it was all automated. So you would just go on to like a little computer program and log in six minutes, phone call to opposing counsel, six minutes, drafted motion, you know, letter, Ray, motion to compel, Six, I mean, it's really, you know, sometimes it'd be like three hours, wrote a brief, but usually it was just six minutes of doing this, six minutes of doing that. And it's 
terribly, terribly annoying. So it's nice to not have to be that. I don't know, just nitpicky now. It's super fastidious. Yeah, fastidious. And I mean, it's a great it, word. And you appreciate that, for example, you you know, a, a lawyer in private practice would spend ten hours in the office and only be able to account to a client for maybe six hours of that time sometimes, because yeah. there'd be th- restrictions on what you could bill, and so it just gives you a little peek into that misery of of a life. And I don't miss it, but don't I mean, you're billing it. out. So I got into healthcare. What were you doing? Uh, I was doing mostly. I did insurance defense, not healthcare. I was doing a lot of of environmental cleanup type stuff, but on the bad side, like on the polluter yep. side. Um, and then for a while, I started, after I did defense, I started doing insurance work for policyholders, which was helpful for the policyholders because mm. I knew exactly what the insurance pe- companies were going to do because I had worked for them for so long. So I knew exactly what claims they were going to deny, why they were going to deny them. I knew how to take apart those arguments. So that was helpful. And then in the last year of my practice, I worked at a, essentially a foreclosure mill and this is where, oh, okay. if you are familiar with me on Twitter, my battles maybe with, heard with that people. you're a foreclosure. I'm lawyer a foreclosure lawyer who kicked black people out of their houses, which is not the case at all. I did. Um, there was that HAMP program, on, on you know the Obama HAMP yep. program, which was intended to try to keep people in their homes. So I basically did HAMP loans. And those were loan modification programs when folks were trying to like avoid foreclosure. Right. They'd come in and say, "We're going to try and like you know refigure the terms of the loans to see if we can keep you, keep in, you your in your house and not screw you over in terms of the ridiculous amount that you owe on this already shitty loan." Right, right. And so I did loan mods, and like for certain, my there were other people in my firm who were actually kicking people out of their houses, and mm-hmm. I I was doing loan mods for for people I wasn't even supposed to be doing them for. I was just like, I can't, I can't do this. And I remember I literally, I worked that year, maybe it was, maybe it was nine months, 10 months total. And I hated it. I hated Mm -hmm. it. I had up until that point, I'd worked for two really cool white dude partners who actually let me do a lot of cool stuff. Like I, they let me do, they basically let me run a case, this, (laughs) this consumer action case that I ended up getting settled based on the placement of a comma in a statute. So that's how nitpicky. I literally did an entire class action. This is why people pay $700,000 to go to law school. Yeah, based (laughs) on the fucking placement of a comma in a statute. Um, But, you know, they let me run with that. They let me do a lot of funky things, try Uh things out. And then I got to this last firm um, and it was just, I was expected to churn out these motions to dismiss. I was expected to do, I was told at one point that that my briefs were too good. And then I needed to do to work yeah. less on use less time writing these briefs, which for someone who's a perfectionist and a nerd like me was like, the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, I can't do that. And yeah. I was just it was a very upsetting time. I didn't I needed the health insurance because I have a pituitary tumor in my brain. So I couldn't go. I couldn't not work. Right. But I also couldn't continue to work for this firm and to do this kind of work because I didn't go to law school to be part of a system that removes people from their homes, you know? So right. that's when I, that's I think that's about the time that I started to meet you because it was 2011 and I was just like, I fucking hate my job. And all of the Tea Party stuff was exploding with the anti-choice, yep. the anti-abortion restrictions. And I saw you tweeting about it. I was like, she seems cool. I'm going to talk to her. And then we just started yeah, talking to one another. And then I remember I got into I got into a literal fight with our boss Jody about emergency contraception, and she ended up hiring me. And ended up she ended up being right on the issue. I don't know Jody if you're listening to this. I could see that you were absolutely right on that issue. But I think it's really cool that like she ended up hiring me after I basically had a fight with her. So you know that yeah. thank her for being cool enough to hire the mouthy black lady, even though I was kind of obnoxious on Twitter at that time. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's the story of Jess and Imani. That's how we met. 
Twitter, thank you. Thank it's you, good Twitter. for something. It, is good. it may be a hell site most of the time, but it does. I, I do like the fact that it connects people, not only you, but I've met so many great yeah. reproductive rights and reproductive justice and other kinds of social justice a- activists. Um, you know, at the time I was living in a relatively white area, so it was cool to hop on Twitter and see this thriving black community taking off and, you know, just interacting with one another. It was something that I hadn't, you know, I grew up mostly in the suburbs around white folks. So it was a level, a level of community that I hadn't really had before. And so that was really lovely. Um, so yeah, Twitter, you suck sometimes, but sometimes you bring wonderful people together like me and Jess. Um, and one of the, you do, it's true. I will, I will, um, second that. One other thing that's wonderful that I love about our relationship is, and that I'm so appreciative of is that the, uh, areas that we spend a lot of time working in are really complicated. So we have the ability to bounce the law off each other to, yeah. you know, check ourselves to say, this is how I'm reading it. Does this, you know, does this track with how you read it? You know, but oh my God, so much has happened and so much is continuing to happen. And I know like things are falling off our radar left, right and center. What story or issue do you wish we had more time to cover and why? Like, where is it? We've got a little bit of time here to chat. Like, where where, where would you love to see us be able to put some more of our capacity if we just could? I mean, I don't think this is something that we would do because I think it would require more of a knowledge of of history in like a PhD sense. Like we would need like Cynthia Greenlee or somebody who knows, yeah. you know, a lot about the history of black women and, and enslaved women in this country. But I would really love to dig deeper into just the history of reproductive coercion that black women and other women of color, Latinx women, for example, have suffered. And -hmm. I would like to sort of draw that connection between the way that enslaved women were treated, the way that Latinx women were treated in the, the turn of the century when they were being forcibly sterilized by like the hundreds. And, you know, I covered a little bit about this in the article that I wrote about Margaret Sanger, but... I'm also interested in the intra-racial strife regarding black women's reproduction. There's so much talk about the ways in which white supremacy has affected black women and our reproduction and the way that we are viewed and the way black women are viewed, black mothers are viewed, black babies are viewed. We're all demonized in some capacity or another. Um, And I would be interested to talk about the ways in which black people in, in, a, in an intra-racial struggle view black women's reproduction because black women have always had to stand up not just against white people but also against black men but also in a way that makes it clear to black men that we're not siding with white people so it's a very kind of sticky situation that a lot of black women find themselves in and then a lot of black feminists who are way, people who are way smarter than I am. I mean, I didn't start reading black feminist theory until recently. So reading a lot of this stuff has been revelatory for me. But there is this, this, this level of tension between black people about things like Planned Parenthood, about contraception, mm-hmm. about whether or not abortion is black genocide. I mean, there are black nationalists who have believed and who still believe that black women are participating in this in this system that is intended to reduce our populations. And so what does that mean for the agency of black women? I feel like we don't talk enough about the agency of black women and the ways in which we have been stripped of our agency from essentially the time that we were dragged here. Um, And then there's this final thought that I had. I'm really interested to, to just shine a light more on the ways in which black women are responsible and to, and, and I don't want to say responsible like we had a willing choice, but the ways in which our bodies were used to advance medicine 
is critical. Mm, you know, mm, for example, mm-hmm. J. Marion Sims, who's known as the father of gynecology, who perfected various techniques on on repairing injuries after childbirth, he oper- he experimented on enslaved women without anesthesia. And so he's lauded as, or he was until recently, I believe there was a statue of him in New York that was taken down, but yep. he was lauded as this wonderful guy. And like, great, you figured out a way to make it easier for white women to have children by experimenting on black women. And we don't talk about that sort of thing enough. So I wish we had more time to delve into that stuff. For the record, I would read the hell out of all of that. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think, well, you know, and not just from a theoretical perspective, because, you know, I'm sitting here and you're you're describing this and I'm like, you know, nodding vigorously um, as, as you're talking, but because we see that policy fallout still so very specifically. I mean, we can talk about that, and we have on this show, when we talk about things like the attack on Title X family planning, for example, you know, um, but having that historical and cultural context, too, to be able to really, you know, pull that apart more, I think would be fascinating. So you, you do you. What do you want to do? So do me now? Okay. Do um, me, do me. So sort of like big picture, big picture and little picture. Um, You know, one nexus that I really would love to be able to explore and wish I had more capacity to um, is the nexus of disability rights and all of these conversations that we're having. And also because the disability rights community has been so um, crucial and at the forefront, particularly in um, healthcare reform, in pushing back against the worst attacks on it, um, and also really doing an amazing job of framing as a human rights um, issue what this struggle is really about. And that is something that when everything is on fire, unfortunately, I feel s- starts to drop by the wayside. And maybe some yeah. of that comes from having a disability rights attorney, you know, at, at, fa- at father, you know, and some of that background too. But it's so crucial. And I think, you know, you can blow that out into a theoretical way to, you know, to think about the way that we are talking about um, bodies and ability and value and who is worthy of producing, reproducing and who is not and how all of that gets managed and controlled, again, in ways that plays out in very real policy ways now. That's sort of where my, like, Jess Galaxy brain goes, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, in, in some of that stuff. And then always, 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 always the ways in which the legal system is designed to reinforce white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that the limitations of using the legal system to upend white supremacy and what that means for us moving forward. I think we have a lot of conversations about change, but I would love for us to have more conversations about what the sort of replacement is in the real repeal and replace when we're talking about upending white supremacy in sort of like a positive and, and functional way. I think the law has a lot to do there and we just aren't doing it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And especially, you know, if we're coming from a reproductive justice frame, I do think as reproductive justice activists, not that we are, but I think reproductive justice activists generally tend to also not count disability rights as much as they should. You know, I think that's something that, that that RJ as a movement could be better on, especially because the ways in which policies affect disabled people tend to move towards abled people, right? So they test out sterilization and all of these policies. I mean, Buck v. Bell, you know, that 1920-whatever case that said that Virginia's law sterilizing, quote-unquote, imbeciles 
was perfectly fine. And Carrie Buck, Uh essentially, I think she was raped by a relative and her imbecility, quote unquote, came from her being promiscuous. I mean, that's what that's a lot of what disability as it affects women had to do with back then was promiscuity. In fact, my dad, I mean, let me tell a story yeah, real please, quick. Please. This is, so when he, I mentioned Beatrice, the the uh, home that he and, and a colleague helped shut down. You know, these were women who are institutionalized against their will mm. oftentimes. And one of the tasks that I had, because civil rights attorney in Omaha, Nebraska doesn't make a lot of money. I don't know if that's shocking news to you. <laughs> I am so shocked. <laughs> I thought you would be rolling in it. <laughs> so uh, he's very modest in, in means and didn't have a lot of support staff. So I helped him in cases. And one of the things that I helped do was write some, um, you know, not briefs for the court, but sort of internal memos for assessing damages and whatnot. Oh, wow. And we had to tell women's stories. Yeah. That was my job, effectively, was, you know, tell the story of why the law should care about them. Because in civil cases, when you're creating damages, that's based on a person's, the value of their life. Mm-hmm. And the law says that if you are an institution person, your life has very little value because you don't have future earning potential for right. it. Example. You don't, you know, you all of the things that calculate for meaning do not exist in very large um, capacity by measure for for folks who have been institutionalized. And one of the stories that I had to tell was a woman who tried to leave her abusive husband several times to the point where he just had her lobotomized and institutionalized. What? Where then she was repeatedly raped and assaulted by folks who existed, who were staffed at this facility. Oh my God. That was one of the stories that I had to say. And the folks who were, you know, defending the lawsuit said, that's fine. Liability may exist, but we don't have to pay anything because the value of her life in actuarial dollars is zero. Jesus. And so we had to say, yeah, that won't work. Yeah, that's won, really depressing. How old were you when you were doing this stuff? Uh, so that started when I was in like second and third grade. But wow. this is massive class action. So by the time we're in the Eighth Circuit, the Eighth Circuit, by the way, would eventually overturn some of these damages decisions. And my dad's still bitter about it. And it's how I knew the Eighth Circuit sucked. But <laughs> <laughs> so I was doing some of this in I was doing some of this work in high school, you know, like typing up stories, yeah. going through like files and just helping him you know pull together relevant facts and then you know a little bit in college and you know a little bit in law school you know that's fascinating helping helping bruce out so you were like a woke (laughs) seven-year-old i mean you know you're woke in your environment i have no idea what's going on um but no that case started like the the i wasn't doing that stuff when i was in but the like underpinnings of that case absolutely started when i was a little kid and you know class action lawsuits take decades yeah they do yeah, they do. That stuff is that stuff is long. One thing I f- can't believe I forgot to mention this when I was telling the bastard McCarthy story is that um, there was a lawyer who ended up picking up my grandfather's case. It got consolidated with the cases of a bunch of other school teachers who had been fired for similar reasons, and that case went up to the Supreme Court. Ah! So there's a Supreme Court case with my fa- my grandfather's name. His name is Hal Bielan. Um and I just you know that's fascinating to me, right? Like my. Family is, is in a Supreme Court reporter. Yes, I'm repeating my my dated reference from last week about Supreme Court reporters. But yeah, it's really fat. They lost. Um, and I, 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 the one thing I do remember talking to my grandma about is when she was telling me the story of how they went to the Supreme Court. And at the time, I was like, oh, that's cool. The Supreme Court, I guess. You know, like I just didn't have as, as heavy of a legal background from jump as you did because my dad was a professor. Mm-hmm. My mom is a copy editor. That's why I'm a good writer. Thank you, parents. Um, <laughs> but... You know, she's a good thinker and a good thinker. 
Um, but she told me that, you know, the case went to the Supreme Court and they lost. And I said, well, did that make you mad? I mean, she was like, no, we weren't mad. I mean, he was such a nice young man, <laughs> the lawyer. He was a nice young man and he did his best and he was doing it pro bono. I mean, like, you know, my grandparents didn't have any money to pay this guy. And so she was just happy. This that, is a biopic. Yeah. We got to write. The, we got to. Yeah. Make this I mean, I honestly biopic. I do. I have I have actual reels of my grandfather testifying at the House on American House on American Committee, like at those HUAC, HUAC meetings. This like I have great. real yeah. like from the 50s um, and all this information. And, and someday I probably will write a book about it. I need to start getting my mom's story down. Just I need to start recording her and talking to her about this stuff because I hadn't heard a lot of this stuff. So, yeah, I think it's fascinating. So we have something in common that I didn't even know we had in common. And what's that? We have we have shared Supreme Court history. Yeah. Too. <laughs> so your family went to the Supreme. Your family went to the Supreme Court when I was in high school. My high school went to the Supreme Court. Really? In a fight over whether or not a public high school had to have uh, or had to permit Bible studies in its uh, facilities really? after. Yes. Um, so it's all baked into the cake with me. Um, but that is wild. So listeners, look, we're learning. Amani and I just learned something about each other. We're learning. A, see, that's the thing about a marriage. When you have a healthy marriage, you're continually growing and learning things about it's true. one another. <laughs> it's true. We're um, coming up on 10 years. We are. It's crazy. It's crazy to me. Oh, man. Well, this feels like a good break from some of the like yeah. really heavy topics. And like it's the summer. Folks are studying for the bar oh, exam. God. Good, good luck, luck to you all. If you're studying for the bar, good luck to you. Honestly, the best advice that, uh, I, you know, I think Erwin Chemerinsky was my con law Barbary, <laughs> Barbary instructor, yeah. which is pretty funny. But um, it wasn't him. It was someone who was, I guess he was trying to do the do property. We were doing property and okay. we were tr- studying the rule against perpetuities. And everyone was like, no one understands the rule against perpetuities. If you're in law school right now and you don't understand the rule against goddamn perpetuities, don't worry about it. But he said... Just don't even bother learning it. They said, if you don't, there are a couple things, couple topics you can just not even bother learning because it's going to waste more time trying to figure it out than it will, um, you know, answering the question correctly. And the second thing that I that they told me was, if you get a question and you don't remember what the test is, because we talk a lot about tests, lawyers are really into yeah. tests, and usually you have to apply right. our factors, our prongs, pra- factors, prongs, etc. If you can't remember the factors for the prongs for a particular test, just make a test up and then apply the facts to that. And I actually had to do that. <laughs> I remember there was a question about licensing and assignments, and I didn't know shit about licensing and assignments. Oh god! And I just made something up. And then I applied the facts to it and I passed on my first try. So if you feel like you're drowning, I was I was calling my mom on almost on a daily basis, just crying like I can't do this. It's too hard. The bar was three days in California at the time. Yep. My friends in other states were calling me at the night of the second day like, "Woo, we're done. I'm like, fuck you. I still have another day of essays. But it's hard, but you can do it. If you panic, it's okay. We believe in you. And if you don't go to law school, congratulations, because you've made a good decision. (laughs) You've already won. You've already won. Um, So I think that's going to wrap it up for our our little love fest here. We are so happy to be doing this podcast. We love you. We love each other. We love our producer, Mark. Thank you for our su- for support and all of it. Yeah, we really, it, truly it means do. So, you so much are... to us. Um, and if you'd like to talk to us, compliment us, talk about, I don't know, your favorite Dolly Parton song. Uh, you can, Ooh. right? <laughs> I knew that would get a reaction from you. Ooh, we're talking about Dolly Parton now. This is the Dolly Parton podcast. We're your hosts, Jessica and Imani. Um, but yeah, hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Angry Black Lady. Jess is at Hegemommy, H-E-G-E-M-O-M-M-Y. 
And you can follow rewire.news at rewire underscore news. And aside from that, what are we going to do, Jess? We'll see you on the tubes. See you on the tubes. Boom Lawyered is created and hosted by Jessica Mason Piccolo and Imani Gandhi. This episode was produced by Mark Folletti, who is also our executive producer. And the rewire.news editor in chief is Jody Jacobson. 